and welcome to these audio didactic recordings from Project Echo Westwick PHN Hub. Series 7, Session 9. It's Thursday, the 2nd of December 2021, and welcome back to the Echo Network. This session is titled Understanding COVID Positive Care Pathways Part 8, Discharge and Follow-Up. Um, and post-acute COVID. Uh, thank you very much. So as Victoria opens up and we take the next steps on the Commonwealth roadmap towards living with COVID, it appears that COVID is learning to live with us too. With a new variant of concern emerging from South Africa, it seems that we'll need to keep our public health hats on for a little longer as we make sense of this next stage in the pandemic. When we knew variants would emerge, we knew this would happen in countries with low vaccination rates, and we suspected that uh, immunocompromised vaccinated hosts would play a role. This morning, we'll address this briefly in our clinical updates, but I'd like you to please submit um, pre-submit questions um, either in the chat or please email us at the um, Project Echo email uh, for next week's session as we'll have a bit more chance to talk about um, COVID variants in the context of our COVID summer in regional Victoria then. Um, while we wait for that story, while we wait for that story to unfold a little more, this morning we're going to take the opportunity to finish off our COVID care um, series with a focus on the exit point in the pathway. Our didactic will focus on post-acute COVID and our case vignette and discussion will focus on how we can best support patients following the COVID care pathways and exit from isolation. We'll be focusing on the following questions this morning. What is important to patients and how can we best support them with this? In the setting where specialist input might be required, what could good individualised multidisciplinary care look like? What can we achieve for patients in rural and regional settings? And what knowledge gaps do we need to fill to enable primary care to manage this syndrome? So let's get underway. I'm Bianca Forrester, GP, and I'll be facilitating today's meeting alongside Gemma and Katrina. Our learning outcomes remain the same, but I want to just flag um, next week is our last session for uh, the series for the year. And um, we've got a very special guest, Associate Professor Deb Friedman coming along next week, who's the Deputy Chief Health Officer um, and uh, ECHO regular. Um, so um, I want to just flag that with you to let people know. I think it's going to be a really interesting morning. We'll be putting the question to Deb next week of, you know, where are we up to? What have we learned and what's coming? And certainly all those Omicron questions could, um, you know, come forward next week. So do pre-submit a question. We'll put our uh, email in the chat um, because I think what I'd love to do is really moderate and um, uh, pre-submit questions. They'll get privileged and um, rather than a kind of... Um, well, we'll definitely have our usual interactive discussion, but as many pre-submitted questions as possible would be great because then I can organise and cluster it. We'll have about half an hour for Q&A. Um, so thanks for that. And uh, I just want to make a special note is that I'm really keen for you guys to evaluate next week. Even if you don't get to come along to the session, um, we'll send out a post-series evaluation. Um, the team's really excited because we submitted um, Project ECHO as um, something to share at the Safer Care Conference next year. And um, we want to use some of our evaluations to demonstrate impact. So we'd love it if you could evaluate our series. So like I said, even if you don't get a chance next week, um, we'd really value your feedback. All right, what's on the... 
um, agenda for this morning. So uh, Linda Govan's going to bring us the PHN update and Kate Graham, public health vaccinations and COVID care update. Um, introducing this morning, uh, Dr. Arvind Yeramili. He's a registrar, uh, infectious diseases registrar at Bowen Health. And he's here this morning to share with us a presentation on post-COVID syndromes and participate in the discussion. Now, I'm delighted to have Kate, uh, Rachel Robinson back. Um, you all know Rachel. Rachel's been with us at ECHO for, um, you know, really since the beginning and um, and shared a few weeks ago her story of um, of catching COVID and um, and described to us a few weeks ago that let some of those lingering sim symptoms. Now, um, so Rachel's in a slightly unique position of being, um, I guess we're going to present um, her own case and, and also put forward her health consumer kind of uh, reflections. So um, Rachel's other role is she's a project coordinator for MCRI and, and, and interestingly put... Um, you know, really that work that she does for MCRI is around um, paediatric co-consulting in rural uh, Victoria. So it would be interesting to kind of um, also put on your hat about how we might bring to life complex um, or, you know, multidisciplinary case management in rural areas. So thanks um, for that. All right. So um, we'll get underway. I'm going to hand over to you, Linda, and um, thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, Bianca. Um, just a quick look at our vaccination rates uh, for this week. Uh, as you can see for West Vic PHN, we're charging ahead and we're almost at that um, double 95% mark. So we just got a 0.1 um, mark point there to, to creep into the 95% across the region. So I've done really well there. Um, for our First Nations data, we can continue to do comparatively well regarding the difference in vaccination rates between First Nations, Western Victorians and other Western Victorians. However, you can see there's still some pockets there where we need some extra effort and attention. Um, and noting this data is our, um, it's double, um, double, double vaccination rates across the region. And also just for noting, it's, um, it's taken from two data sources. So there is a, a correction fa factor in there when our, our health um, population health team were putting the data together. But basically, it just gives you an overview of, of where we sit in regards to First Nations data. So not too bad. Um, next slide. Thanks, Gemma. Um, we've just published a new COVID-19 positive care pathway on our webpage, and we'll be tidying up and putting some refreshed resources in some other pages as well. But this is um, particularly focused on covid care positive pathways. So it's a quick and central resource for information on caring for COVID-19 positive patients in Western Victoria. It's not intended to um, substitute health pathways. Um, they're linked in there as well. It's really just to provide a quick and easy resource. So we've got um, some clinical, current clinical support and resources in there, links to information on social and financial support available for people who have tested positive to COVID-19. And when, as they come on board, we'll have the local COVID-19 care pathways listed for each of the regions. So that's a, that's a work in progress, but hopefully that you'll find this a helpful resource when you're looking for some quick information. So yeah, and the links there. Um, just a quick update regarding managing excess Pfizer. It, it's still a bit of an issue. It's not as much. What we've been doing over the last week is really taking requests from practices to decrease the allocation down to 60 doses a fortnight, just to give you some extra flexibility there. And I imagine you'd have to flex up soon as boosters for children come in in January. So that's the next 
um, issue to get prepared for. But um, in regards to contacting us, definitely do. We do have the occasional practice that reaches out looking for extra Pfizer. Otherwise, um, contact the VOC, as is the usual process. They may say, contact us if you already have. You can ignore that and just um, just work with them. And um, again, we'll reach back. We'll reach back to you if we do find a practice that needs extra Pfizer. So um, yeah, that's really just just a reminder of that process. And next slide, thanks. Um, and we've heard from the Commonwealth that by the 10th of December, so just over a week away, there will be a new HPOS report available um, that will assist you in identifying patients in your practice who are yet to have a vaccination or have only had one. Um, it doesn't matter where they would have had that, you'll be able to access that report. So that should help in just targeting patients that um, still need to be vaccinated. Um, and just, a, I guess, a final reminder, it's actually one day too late. We have closed off our PPE, PPE orders um, pre-Christmas just so we can guarantee delivery. However, if you have a, an urgent need, definitely let us know. Otherwise, we'll resume PPE deliveries in January, orders and um, deliveries in January. I think that's it. Thanks, Bianca. Great. Thanks, Linda. Over to you, Kate. Good morning. Um, so I thought we'd just start up. Um, these are just a few slides from the testing bulletin that goes out to all the testing sites. Um, and sometimes it may not get through to GPRCs or um, sometimes the GP is actually doing the testing. So I wanted to share some of the really key things that have changed recently. Um, so the pre-departure testing requirements for travel, um, just wanted to reinforce that that is free in Victoria um, for all domestic travel um, because there has been a lot in the media with the opening of borders, upcoming opening of borders to Queensland in particular, where they have been sort of talking about the cost of testing and just reinforcing that in Victoria there is no cost for domestic um, testing. However, for pre-departure international travel, there is still a cost. Um, so travel post-testing uh, positive to COVID is a little bit more tricky um, because what we don't want is we don't want individuals to test positive again. And we know that there's a number of people who will continue to test positive for COVID for some time after they've um, finished their infectious period. So currently we're recommending, um, and it will differ from destination to destination, so it's really important that um, individuals get advice for their particular destination, but you may be approached as a GP um, to provide a certificate, which must be issued between uh, 14 days before the day of the flight for sort of international travel or things like that. Um, so with statements um, that you've had COVID, not considered to be infectious, and there's definitely a push from public health, um, the Department of Health um, and LPHUs that they would like GPs to be able to sort of call pathology, get that information rather than sort of clogging up central phone lines, waiting on hold for ages to try and get this information and get information out to patients. Um, they would really encourage um, patients to sort of be contacting their GPs about this. And I think that if you are seeing people in this situation, it then becomes a really good prompt to sort of talk about post-COVID conditions as well, which is an added bonus. So now we're on to um, all the changes for this week. And I blame all the American TV shows that have never taught me that Omicron was actually a Greek letter in all their sororities and fraternities because they always had Omega rather than Omicron um, as the O of um, <laughs> Greek letters. So... Um, 
we wanted to talk about um, the fact that for Omicron at the moment, we're still working on an elimination strategy. Um, this may change over time when we get a little bit more information about what is happening, um, what the risks pose, um, whether it actually is a risk in different settings. We know it's a risk um, currently in the Southern African areas, but in those areas, there's a really different vaccination profile, really different overall health statistics um, and population statistics there. So it's difficult to extrapolate that to sort of the Australian population and particularly our areas are 95% vaccinated, which is really fantastic. Um, so at present, regions of concern are being put directly into 14 days of hotel quarantine. However, this was from the 28th of November onwards. So you may still have people in the community who have arrived um, prior to the 28th who will be in the community who will be presenting for testing. Um, other overseas countries um, have 72 hours of home quarantine um, and then sort of not entering sensitive settings following that. Um, so it's really important that when you are doing PCRs for these people, um, that you are flagging them as priority one return traveller so that um, if they do come back as positive for COVID, it's prioritised, gene sequencing is done as an emergency. Um, if you do come up with a result and somebody you know is a return traveller, this is something you want to be urgently discussing with the local public health units um, as a matter of sort of extreme urgency at this point in time, because we're treating this really like we were when we didn't have COVID around in terms of um, contact tracing, management, all that kind of stuff. The other thing I wanted to flag is, although we're not managing secondary close contacts in any other setting, um, we're managing sort of um, household contacts in this setting quite differently. Um, and sort of thinking about you may have people who are sort of within your workplace who have family arriving from overseas um, or be seeking advice around this. Currently, it is not in the directions. The directions are still um, waiting update. So what we want to make sure is that people who are at home with anyone who has returned from overseas and is still within their quarantine time are also required to quarantine or strongly advised to quarantine because as Karen talked about last week, there is that difference between what's mandated and written in the directions versus what is not actually an enforceable requirement, but we would be strongly advising at this point in time that anyone in those settings be quarantining as well. Um, and we'll be looking at um, sort of making sure that your attestation um, in general practice maybe looks to um, the return travellers being identified again, um, sort of particularly in the household contacts for that reason. Um, so not so much people presenting in unless you're sort of an emergency setting because most people will be aware that they're under quarantine kind of things, but it may be worthwhile having a look at what questions you're asking people who are entering the practice. So Delta, we're continuing on in our controlled suppression strategy. Um, as per last week, thinking about those differences between education, social, workplace contacts, household contacts. Um, 
Priority groups um, are still something to be considered. While the overall sort of suppression strategy um, allows for sort of increased freedoms um, within society, we need to sort of think about places where some of those freedoms may put other people at risk and making sure that we have some buffers put around. So I think one of the settings that I've been thinking about this week, because we've had um, a disability school outbreak that I've been looking at, where because rat testing isn't mandatory, it can be really challenging for children with disability and parents with children to have to perform rat testing on these children. Um, we think that maybe they're a group in which this may not be happening to the same levels as it is in other um, sort of settings, like in a primary care setting um, with health knowledge um, and health expertise. Um, and as a workplace, you have better control over people sort of coming back to work. Um, whereas in school settings, there's probably less control. So I think if you are seeing children, particularly children with disability, um, talking through the, with the parents, particularly about rat testing, any concerns about rapid antigen testing, um, and if they are reluctant or if they're finding a challenge in doing this um, or they sort of have any issues with PCR testing as well, thinking about alternatives. Um, so while it's not preferred um, just due to the decreased sensitivity um, for PCR tests, saliva testing is an option. Um, prolonged isolation is something that we want to avoid in general, um, particularly for children with disability because it often um, provides more stress on the family. Um, but thinking about the sort of call to test service as well um, for home testing um, and maybe looking at PCR um, at home for those children or parent-given tests, um, parent-given saliva tests, self-performed um, self, uh, tests as well. Um, so the public health units, keeping those details to the front of mind, particularly if you do get any of those overseas um, returned cases just as a critical kind of contact point. Um, and I'll just sort of look at the health pathways. I, I really want to flag our post-COVID, long COVID health pathway because this is one we, we developed in conjunction with a lot of people. Um, we had we were working on it at the same time as the RACGP. So we developed it in um, collaboration really with the RACGP um, and so looking at sort of how you manage post-COVID conditions within general practice. And actually, if you have a look in the sources for the National COVID-19 Clinical Evidence Task Force, you'll actually see that the um, Western Victoria um, Health Pathway on Post-COVID Conditions is one of their sources. So that's something I'm really proud of. Um, <laughs> that was very exciting to have as one of the successes for last year. So um, I'll just go back quickly to vaccination, um, just um, in terms of booster doses. Um, I think like from our pre-submitted question, the advice on timing of booster doses, that advice is still pending. It's definitely being looked at at present with a number of expert bodies in terms of whether we actually bring the booster doses forward. However, um, at present, 
we're keeping them at six months. Um, but thinking about the logistics, uh, particularly coming up to Christmas time, clinic shutdowns, clinics running at decreased capacity, how we best use expiring stocks. So thinking about the risk of individuals, if you've got somebody at higher risk, whether workplace or things like that, or health risks, um, whether you might just want to give them their booster um, that little bit early if you've got a dose that's going to expire and not be of any use to anyone versus giving it a little bit earlier for somebody, I think that that is a worthwhile risk consideration. Um, and I think that over, um, as Linda was sort of describing, we may need to sort of have that flex up, flex down thinking because on the 8th of this month, that is the six-month anniversary of when um, we were eligible for all 40-year-olds and over to be um, COVID vaccinated. So I think we're going to have that big increase in people wanting booster doses at the same time as the state health-run facilities are um, winding down their services, pharmacies have wound down what they're providing. Um, and we may, in the midst of all this, be throwing um, the children as well as a separate um, group that will need vaccination quickly, possibly at that start of school time and looking at out of hours or out of school hours vaccinations and how that fits into um, things. So I can see in the chat that there is how early is a little bit early. Could we give a booster from four months? And I think, again, look, the advice in the ATAGI guidance is from five months. And I think that that is the advice that's written at present. Um, we know that for people who are immunocompromised, they have their third dose from two months following. I think it would depend on sort of those risk factors if you think that somebody has any degree of immunocompromise, um, whether due to sort of extreme age um, or due to other health factors or things like that, that will be um, a consideration. Um, but I think that's all from me so that we can get on to the good stuff. Just one more quick clarification. Yep. Um, disappeared that the, um, yeah, it's not all Mabnib drugs need early third dose. They do have a list, but um, yep. it is hard to read that list. And I think when Cal Mags came in, he was saying, yeah. oh, yeah, if there is some discretion too. as well. Yeah. And it's um, with the immunocompromise, it's a really individual kind of assessment in terms of if you've got people who may be on some um, immunocompromising things that don't quite meet those dose um, criteria. Or, but they've got other factors or they've got multiple small levels of things, um, I think there is some leeway in terms of what makes somebody immunocompromised, but that list is a reasonable sort of starting point. And if you're unsure at all, um, I think that always um, having a chat, particularly to sort of the oncology team or rheumatologists who are treating patients often with these sort of significant immunocompromising drugs to see how immunocompromised they are is always a good backup plan. But in the unsure. setting now of the uncertainty that we are on the side of really boosting, would you say? I think that like you need to look at what's happening in the community, in their yeah. risk environment too. Um, and I think that probably the group that gets missed most is the long-term hormonal treatments for cancer that probably don't get considered because people are on them for such a long time. So your treatments for prostate and breast cancer that are hormonal treatments that go on forever um, pretty much. 
they are actually um, considered in the immunocompromising okay, great. medications. Thank you. Great. So uh, do keep questions coming through for Kate. If she can answer them uh, in the chat, she no doubt will. Otherwise, it stimulates discussion for next week. So thanks, Kate. Over to you, Arvind, for our presentation. Great. Yeah. So um, thanks, everyone, uh, Yeah, for inviting me to talk today. Uh, my name is Arvind Iramelli. I'm one of the infectious diseases of registrars um, working at uh, Barwon Health at University Hospital Geelong. Um, so um, I've done a talk um, earlier in the year uh, in as part of our um, Infectious Diseases Journal Club, um, looking at uh, post-acute COVID and uh, the current literature. And um, I guess it's it's a very kind of emerging, as with all COVID-19 um, research, is a very emerging uh, topic area. Um, we uh, obviously know that it'll, um, it'll be a big part of, of um, our care pathways going forward, um, and it represents a, a significant um, a health issue going forward as well, given um, the number of cases we've had both um, in our region, but obviously across the state as well. So I, I just start off with some definitions. So um, acute uh, COVID-19, and these are from the NICE guidelines. Um, so uh, they say um, this uh, a, a syndrome lasting uh, up to four weeks um, following the onset of, of symptoms or, or acute illness. Um, and then there's this ongoing kind of symptomatic COVID-19, which ranges from about four to 12 weeks um, following uh, the onset of symptoms. And then um, they define post-acute COVID um, as uh, symptoms uh, that can continue to persist um, uh, after about 12 weeks or so. So that's kind of the the, the frame, the, um, the ballpark, but really like, you know, we, we're thinking about post-acute from, from the four week mark. Um, and it, as you can see by the graph, um, uh, PCR positivity kind of um, uh, starts to go down at that four-week mark, and that's usually when when um, some of these um, long COVID-type symptoms um, start to manifest and present themselves and and persist uh, post that acute phase. Um, and there's various different manifestations, which obviously uh, I'll go into in this talk as well. Um, so the, these uh, this data I've taken from these two um, uh, articles. Um, uh, the first one from Nature Medicine um, looked uh, at nine different studies. Uh, both were uh, systematic reviews. Um, looking uh, the first one looked at nine different studies with varying kind of follow up up to about six months, and used a body systems approach to uh, cl classifying the different types of symptoms and manifestations. The second study uh, from Frontiers in Medicine um, was much more comprehensive. Um, looked at 145 studies. Um, and again, used a, a more of a body systems approach. But um, these were kind of early on, earlier on in the year, and um, uh, there has been some more emerging uh, kind of evidence as well. These studies mostly looked at um, uh, data from the USA, Europe, and China. Um, there was a, it, uh, the populations were um, uh, mixed, kind of a retrospective and prospective um, data that was used. Um, they were mainly cohort studies, some cross-sectional and um, case reports and series. And again, the, the populations are mostly heterogeneous um, in terms of kind of illness severity, demographics and sample size with varying follow-up as mentioned, um, about four weeks to six months. So just taking that into account when um, reviewing the results. Regarding the pathophysiology, um, the, this is still a bit unclear, but uh, there are some kind of leading theories at the moment. Um, Regarding risk factors, we know that severity of acute COVID-19 is usually associated with um, uh, 
the presence of persistence of symptoms. Um, so, um, uh, you know, if there's uh, dyspnea or fatigue or muscle weakness in in the acute illness, um, uh, these and, and these are quite severe symptoms, then usually these would pers persist um, in in the uh, post-acute phase. Um, we also know that um, the severity uh, is linked to um, health-related uh, quality life scores, um, pulmonary function tests, uh, ab abnormalities on those, and radiographic abnormalities. Um, female sex, older age, uh, pre-existing respiratory disease, uh, high body mass index and ethnic mi minorities um, uh, form some of the other risk factors. Uh, some of the proposed me mechanisms um, include um, virus-specific uh, pathophysiologic changes. So um, uh, we know that uh, the SARS-CoV-2 virus itself induces some endothelial damage um, in the, uh, in the um, lungs especially, and um, this can uh, lead to persistent changes um, going forward. Um, there's a, a, a big inflammatory component, as we know, um, in response to the acute infection um, with a cytokine storm, and um, there's a suggestion that lingering effects from this uh, might play a role. Um, and then we know that there are some complications um, post-critical illness uh, in acute COVID, um, such as microvascular injury. We know that um, sometimes uh, uh, these are you know, patients in, in hospital um, uh, are quite immobile, especially those in ICU who have long stays in ICU, and there's uh, often a lot of different metabolic alterations as well. Um, there is also this um, uh, suggestion that secondary infections might play a role. Um, we do see secondary infections in COVID-19, mainly bacterial, um, uh, but there is um, fungal and, and um, uh, sometimes viral co-infections um, such as influenza or RSV as well that can, that can manifest and whether these are contributing to um, the pathophysiology of long COVID um, is another area of emerging research. So just in terms of the syndromes, um, so um, mostly uh, the main symptoms that persist appear to be nonspecific. So things like uh, myalgias, arthralgias, he uh, headaches. Um, however, um, the, the uh, different manifestations seem to involve uh, many different body systems. And I think, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to get bogged down by all these different kind of manifestations. But I think the main kind of takeaway is to... to um, have a, a bit of a systems review approach um, and, and really kind of specifically asking about um, the various body systems, but keeping in mind that, you know, it, it's all integrated and doesn't necessarily affect um, one body system. Um, so just in terms of a bit of the data, so um, from a cardiovascular point of view, um, these were from uh, a patient cohort with mild to moderate uh, acute COVID. Um, and in terms of symptoms, chest pain um, and palpitations seem to predominate. Um, there was also uh, some complications from the acute um, uh, illness that uh, um, lingered on, such as, um, you know, arrhythmias, uh, tachycardia and autonomic dysfunction. Um, and uh, ongoing myocardial inflammation was actually seen um, uh, on cardiac MRI at about two, two months. Um, there was increased incidence of, of um, stress cardiomyopathy and myocarditis um, in the acute infection, but, but whether this translates to, to post-acute COVID is a bit unclear. In terms of respiratory, um, dyspnea was one of the main symptoms, and um, uh, there was some ongoing hypoxia as well with the need for supplemental oxygen um, and even CPAP uh, at, at about 60 days. The risk of um, 
ongoing PA and pulmonary hypertension is currently un unclear. Um, neuropsychiatric symptoms um, make up a, a, a big component of, of post-acute COVID as well. And uh, this data is usually from mild to moderate COVID um, and there's limited evidence um, for, for severe acute COVID. Um, but uh, mainly symptoms like chronic malaise, myalgias, uh, sleep disturbance um, and uh, anxiety, depression um, are the, uh, the main symptoms. Um, uh, headaches, um, cognitive impairment, and, and there's this, uh, um, uh, this symptom that uh, many patients describe as brain fog, um, which, which um, seems to linger and, and causes uh, quite a bit, bit of disability. Um, so that's something to, to look out for as well. Um, and then um, other uh, psychiatric manifestations like psychotic symptoms can, can sometimes develop as well. And of course, like the um, cardiovascular and pulmonary disease, um, there can be lingering complications of the acute infection, such as stroke, uh, hypoxia, brain injury. Um, other manifestations include olfactory. As we know, especially um, from the first wave, there was a lot of um, anosmia um, and hypogesia as well. Um, and so um, this can uh, certainly persist up to about six months after symptom onset. Um, there is a syndrome that uh, I'm sure many have heard about, the multi-system multi inflammatory syndrome in children, um, uh, which is uh, essentially an inflammatory syndrome that um, uh, presents uh, specifically in children uh, around the one-month mark post their acute infection. And there's certain criteria that the, the World Health Organization uses um, uh, that can uh, define this syndrome. It, it seems to present a bit like a Kawasaki's um, kind of syndrome. Um, mainly due to um, ongoing kind of in inflammatory or cytokine um, release. Um, it seems to be the, the, the main mechanism um, at, uh, at present. Um, other kind of um, system involvement include hematologic um, uh, thromboembolic events, um, although the, the role for ongoing anticoagulation um, is still unclear um, and is it, it's kind of a, a, a risk assessment. If they're very high risk, then um, uh, potentially you would use um, ongoing anticoagulation. Um, renal, we know that uh, COVID, acute COVID can affect um, renal function and cause AKI. And um, there are um, reports of um, ongoing renal dysfunction, such as um, a collapsing glomerular nephropathy, um, endocrine, uh, diabetes, thyroiditis, uh, bone mineral disease, um, gastrointestinal. Um, uh, certainly there's some evidence that um, uh, the gut microbiome can be altered. Um, um, and there's, uh, because of this, there could be an um, a risk of opportunistic um, pathogens and uh, dermatologic as well with hair loss um, being the predominant symptom reported. So just briefly in terms of the guidelines and um, that was uh, touched upon by Kate before, but um, there are many uh, nowadays, both international and local. Um, some of the ones that I've uh, had a look at um, it, uh, were the British Thoracic uh, society um, and they have alg algorithms for evaluating um, post-COVID syndromes um, in the first three months um, with a clinical review and chest x-ray being suggested uh, for all patients at, at 12 weeks um, and then considering um, other investigations such as um, pulmonary function tests um, and uh, imaging um, depending on uh, uh, what uh, perhaps what symptoms predominate and, and what um, uh, at, the, at the time of follow-up. Um, and, and then the NICE guidelines as well, um, uh, with, which is similar to BTS, but um, 
uh, incorporates more blood testing, um, such as CRP, BNP, and, and TFTs. And if there's significant psychiatric symptoms, then, then obviously to refer to a, a psych, um, psychiatrist or, or psychologist, I would, would be advised. Um, and then the, uh, the RACG, RACGP, of course, has um, uh, guidelines as well. Um, and uh, I've just uh, taken a bit of a snapshot from those, um, but, but these are quite useful as well um, for uh, the management and, 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 and also what to kind of look out for um, in terms of the most common symptoms that, that uh, we should ask when seeing these patients. Um, so the take home uh, from, from this is, is basically that this is still an evolving area of research, but will become uh, very prevalent as we all know um, in the near future. Um, uh, I think the, the best thing to do um, when following up patients is to have a systems uh, approach to review um, uh, and asking about uh, um, uh, symptoms that will affect uh, uh, these various body um, systems. Um, typically there's more non-specific symptoms um, just to keep in mind. Um, so things like myalgia, fatigue, uh, arthralgia, um, headache, um, and I think we're really seeing that this requires a, an interdisciplinary approach to management with, um, you know, uh, various specialists and um, allied health uh, being key to, to kind of um, uh, managing um, patients with post-COVID going forward. Um, and as mentioned, there are international and local guidelines available. Thanks very much. Yes, sure. Um, I, I suppose anecdotally, um, I've, I've heard of uh, people with, with relatively mild symptoms of COVID, then going on to develop long COVID, which could be a little surprising um, if they had asymptomatic illness or even mild illness to then go on for weeks afterwards with uh, yeah, lethargy and muscle ache and uh, shortness of breath and that sort of thing. So in fact, the long COVID for them might have been worse than the actual illness itself. I'm just wondering whether that is something that is recognised or is that more of an anecdotal kind of example that I've come across? Yeah, I think um, definitely um, there is, I mean, there's certainly data that suggests that um, the, the, the more severe the acute illness, potentially the more severe the, the, the long COVID type symptoms. However, I don't think it necessarily always correlates. So you can, uh, as you mentioned, uh, have, um, you know, mild COVID, but then um, potentially get, you know, more severe um, post-acute COVID symptoms as well. But, but generally th there is... Um, uh, there certainly is evidence that, um, yeah, the severity of symptoms um, seems to persist um, if, if you have severe uh, acute COVID. Mm, thank you. All right. Um, what I think we'll do, actually, there's a question from, apart from assessment and diagnosis um, of post-acute COVID, are there any recommendations on how to treat in the early phase or even prevent pacing? Is pa like pacing from the early recovery phase? Yeah, th thanks for the question. I, I think... Um, uh, yeah, it, I mean, the data is still emerging about this. Um, I think it, it really depends on, yeah, you know, in that hospital admission, um, you know, uh, once they have recovered from um, an acute kind of medical episode, then, then um, linking in with rehab uh, is probably key um, and um, other allied health input. So um, we know that, you know, that a lot of these patients are, are very deconditioned, um, uh, have got uh, a lot of uh, issues with malnutrition. So I think getting on top of these kind of issues early on, um, you know, in hospital, but also while they've 
initially been discharged is, is going to be key. And I think it's going to be about linking in um, different community services um, for these patients. And, uh, and obviously, um, uh, I think community, um, community health, uh, general practice is, is going to play a key role. So, so in, in terms of kind of um, uh, having these links there and, and keeping them um, going forward for, for these patients. Mm, sounds like we need to make sure in our address book we have our uh, you know, exercise physiologist. Uh, who else is in our team? Dietitian potentially. Mm, who else are you mm. thinking of in? We might need yeah. to be. Yep. Yeah, exercise physiologists, dietitians, physiotherapists, um, uh, you know, uh, psychologists, if, if um, uh, mental health is a significant issue there as well. Um, but also um, getting some specialist input as well from respiratory cardiology. Um, so it is quite, um, yeah, multi, multi kind of discipl disciplinary. Um, but I think, yeah, the key thing is going to be keeping those um, services um, there for, the, for these patients um, out in the community once discharged, but, but starting yeah, as early as possible, I would say. Mm, all right. So we're going to be having these conversations crew and perhaps into next year through our case-based echoes. Um, you know, how are you going getting into this, these, this, these people? Is it private respiratory and cardiology? Are we going through the public system? Let's kind of think about how those referral processes and pathways are going. And glue asks, is the recommendation for everyone to have a chest X-ray at 12 weeks, even if no symptoms? Is that a kind of a, a standard follow-up or are we just looking at that for people presenting with symptoms? Um, that's certainly what um, the British guidelines say. Um, they just for all patients to get a chest X-ray 12, uh, 12 weeks, which um, I think is probably fair enough. I mean, you know, a lot of these patients have um, uh, a lot of um, yeah lingering kind of um, pulmonary uh, issues. Um, so uh, to to keep an eye on how the chest is going is probably probably a good idea. I would say. Um, I'm not sure actually what our national task force guidelines say, but it, that would be um, something to check about that. Well, if any keen beans have got that under their fingertips, we'll have a look at that. I guess I'm wondering how it would change management or is there? Yeah, that's, that's, that's a good question. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, probably wouldn't necessarily, um, depending on, yeah, I guess in terms of their symptoms, um, uh, but, but certainly it might give us an idea of, of you know, the, the the lingering kind of effects um, in the lungs, um, but whether it changed management, oh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not too sure. Early relapse after recovered from two-week usual course of COVID, is there a role of further testing um, for new strains? So um, have I got that question right? Because I think we were saying that there's that 90-day lockout where testing again for COVID um, will bring about uh, that um, potentially false positive because we've still got that dying COVID um, that's going to flag on our PCR test. Is that the reason, Arvind, or do we have super, super immune systems that um, block COVID <laughs> post that infection? Um, right. So just to clarify, sorry, it, it's, it's whether someone gets acute COVID and it, with yeah. it, it's a strain, is it? Well, I mean, you said in the, yeah, that's right. You said yeah. in the, um, that, that, that really uh, we're becoming decreasing the, the, the PCR um, isn't going to, is going to, um, sorry, the pickup rate of COVID uh, down to about four weeks, um, mm. it becomes PCR undetectable. Although Kate was saying early on that we don't test within 90 days because we believe that they're not going to be positive again or oh, that yeah. it's going to be a false positive. So is there any um, 
benefits in retesting for COVID and when would you say we absolutely wouldn't do it until? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, look, I don't think there's benefit in, in retesting even, you know, there's, there's still emerging data with these with these new variants, but but um, I would say that, um, yeah, once they've gotten over their acute phase and, and we know, you know, from, uh, from, you know, CDNA guidelines and things like that, like from for, after 14 days of the two-week mark, generally, you know, we would say, um, patients can be cleared and, and the department actually is doing it at um, 10 days for certain individuals obviously as well um, so um, uh, but there wouldn't be any role for retesting here um, on current kind of understanding of the evidence yeah great all right great to see there's lots of questions this is obviously a really interesting topic and we will come back to it next year and it will be driven I guess the sessions will be driven by you bringing us cases Well, that almost concludes our didactic content for this morning. We won't bring you the recording of the case discussion, but come along and join the discussion next week. Thank you, everyone. Next week, um, Associate Professor Deb Friedman, our Deputy Chief Health Officer, will be with us. So do uh, write to us um, and uh, put in some questions, or you can do it through our valuation. So this one's just our session evaluation. Please evaluate it. And, of course, next next week we'll do our series evaluation. Um, So thanks all. And uh, we will look forward to seeing you next week. Do tell colleagues and friends. Um, We're also going to be asking Deb about how to plan for summer. So, uh, you know, come along with all your ideas and because this will be our last echo for probably into March. So um, bring all your questions and we look forward to seeing you next week. Um, Thanks again, Arvind and Rachel and um, Kate and Linda. Um, We'll catch you next week. Take care, everyone. Thanks for listening and come along and join the discussion next week. Google Westfic PHN Project Echo COVID-19 Pandemic Response Network and you'll find a way to register. By registering, we'll send you reminders each week and we'll let you know what's coming up in the sessions and you'll also receive our resource pack that includes notes, podcasts, webinars, slide decks and any resources mentioned in the discussion. Thanks for listening.